My guest on this episode, Jake Shannon. Most of the listeners may know him in the grappling world for his catch wrestling. But he has many other business ventures and passions. The two other main businesses are Thales Coaching and Podista. Thales Coaching is where he can help guide you in business, entrepreneurship, financial, and in just life in general. So make sure to contact him with any questions on his Instagram, thales.coaching, which is T-H-A-L-E-S dot C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G. This other business called Badista, which he helps cannabis retailers maximize their effort with the latest and greatest software that him and his partners created in order to keep track of all point of sales, track purchase history, and control their inventory on what is flying off the shelves or what is going stale. So let's talk about the sketch wrestling, because that's what most of the listeners know him by. He's had the opportunity to learn from the best sketch wrestlers through Carl Gotch and Billy Robinson. Well, Billy Robinson, he spent seven years learning everything about Billy and catch wrestling while building up his brand scientific wrestling in order to preserve history of the grappling art. With the help of Billy Robinson, they have created a certification to dive deep into catch wrestling with some top tier catch as catch can wrestlers slash coaches. These camps are typically two to three days long and he holds them a couple times a year or tries to. Now understand that through 24 hours of teaching will make you the greatest grappler that has walked the earth, but this sets a solid foundation in the brutal side of submission grappling. What will you learn? Kitches catch can coaching best practices. You'll learn rule set variations, conditioning drills, principles of wrestling scientifically. Kitches catch can concepts, techniques and pinning and submission combinations, reverse terminal takedown chains, punishing rides, defense, escapes and reversals, hand fighting, catches catch can finishing holds such as neck cranks, strangles, leg locks, wrist locks, and much, much more. So go over to scientificwrestling.com to find out more on where these are and how you can get involved with catch wrestling. If you can't make any of these camps, head on over to BJJ Fanatics to pick up his two most recent DVDs, catch wrestling submissions and catch wrestling takedowns. I hope you guys enjoyed this show and learning more about Jake Shannon as much as I enjoyed interviewing him. Thank you. Congrats on the uh, the videos, those uh, BJJ fanatics. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, those um, right when they came out, I uh, I've hit you up a couple times in the past, just asking questions, and it was actually uh, it's pretty cool to see that being on a um, majority jujitsu you know platform. Yeah, I mean uh, it was it was totally out of the blue. They just randomly uh, uh, Michael Zenga, who runs the company, just sent me an email. He's like, "Do you want to do an instructional?" I'm kind of like, "Me." Like, okay, that's awesome. I mean, it's, it's great because like you said, um, they're very much supporting, um, all forms of grappling, even though the Mm -hmm. name is BJJ fanatics. I mean, technically, I guess I'm under their sub brand, which is fanatics wrestling. So, um, but you know, and they've got, I think they branched out to Brazilian jiu-jitsu reality self-defense. So he's, he's really taken, uh, the business model and really run with it. But what what's also cool um so i'm very grateful to bjj fanatics and and if anybody actually that's interested um i put up on my blog at scientificwrestling.info which is just the blog scientificwrestling.info mm-hmm. a, a list of all the catch wrestling um you know related or oriented um instructionals that they put out and they put out a bunch i mean not just me or i think probably neil melanson's probably the one that's got the most yep. uh, catch videos with them, but, um, they got, um, 
they got Sakuraba, Miyato. right? Like two of his videos. Yeah, they got I Sakuraba, believe. Miyato. They have some Gokor. They have. Uh, they just even got Fujiwara on there. So yeah, I saw that. Um, if you go to scientificwrestling.info, I I don't think I put on the Fujiwara one yet, but you can see all the other ones, and they've been very supportive. And and what I like about it, um, it's basically kind of what they've done with their instructionals is the same business model that I did, but I stayed very, very small to catch mm -hmm. wrestling. So I tried yeah. to gather all the guys that had content back in the day, you know, 15 years ago or 10 years ago and produced my own videos, but they were only catch wrestling. I mean, BJJ fanatics, they have taken it to like a whole other level. I mean, they're so successful. It's, I'm really, really uh, happy for them and really honored to have been invited to, to film for them. Yeah, and uh, what's awesome for them, right? They get to they invite all these people, so they get to just kind of like see what everybody's doing, and it's like in their house, and it's like, wow, that's cool. Yeah, so. I mean, the the cool thing about them and bringing in catch wrestling is that, I mean, I think it's hard to to deny the influence of catch wrestling on modern grappling now. I mean, it's very simply by not only being invited to such a huge platform like BJJ Fanatics, but I mean, look at the work of what, you know, I think John Danaher is probably kind of the big guru right now. And, you know, he's talking about pinning. He's talking about leg locks. Um, he's talking about no gi. These are all things that, I mean, you know, I look at Danaher's death squad and they're all a bunch of super jacked freaking leg lockers. And it reminds me of the lion's den from the early nineties, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it's kind of undeniable the the impact that catch is happening. As small as as small as we are, we are, it we're having a huge impact, which is great. Well, I think uh, Danaher. It's also amazing. Uh, but I mean, late, he did do the leg locks a while back. But it's it's I like to see like Gordon Ryan, especially obviously because he's the star of jujitsu. But he switched it up. Like uh, last ADCC, he didn't do leg locks. He he did arm drags to back takes to, um, so it's interesting to see like evolutions and how it just kind of circles back around over and over and over. Right. Yeah. And that's what to your Billy, point, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm sure when catch wrestling came to light and when you started, it, it's the same stuff, but it's just going in this big circle. Right. Yeah. Billy used to always say that, um, you know, exactly that that it's a cycle that what happens is the champ whoever is the champ and has all the eyes on him right now and that i would probably be gordon ryan everybody emulates the champ yep right and so everybody starts doing leg locks but then there's people who like you know there's things like nelson's and and other moves that are that are being forgotten and then these guys pick them up and they start because everybody's focused here and forgotten about these good moves then these guys start winning and everybody knows the leg lock, so then it becomes, you know what I mean? And it's just, it, the moves just cycle <laughs> over, yeah. you know, it's, it's decades or whatever. But what's popular just cycles through. Nothing's new. So um, what got you into catch? How long, how long uh, have you been doing catch? And um, what, like, like hey, I want to do catch. Well, I think, um, you know, I've been doing grappling mm -hmm. for a very long time. Um, and I start. I uh, I started with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu back in 1994 um, here in Colorado. They had the first two UFCs here, mm -hmm. and I was very lucky to see the second one uh, live in 1994. 
and it blew me away. I was already in judo. And so um, to see something so similar to what I was doing and with so much more emphasis on Nawaza, uh, I was kind of blown away. And, and, you know, I've always been kind of a tall, lanky guy. So mm -hmm. to see, you know, lanky ass Hoist Gracie just demolish people was really, really inspiring. Um, but, you know, I, I've always, I started as a wrestler when I was like five and my mom put me in peewees and uh, I had kind of some health issues as a child. So it kind of pulled me in and out, but I always was very interested in it and always kept a little bit of a toe dipped into it. So anyway, um, I just didn't like the gi. I mean, to mm -hmm. be honest, I, I was a young dude. I, I didn't have a, uh, a uh, washer dryer in my little apartment yeah. in college. Having a gi was a pain in the ass. Um, anyway, so I kind of started just doing no gi, but I kind of was having, I was getting a little burned out because I was really, really into it. I actually, as soon as I graduated college, I moved to California to because there was no real jujitsu schools in Colorado yeah. at that time, but we're talking 1995. So I moved to California and um, I was, you know, I was broke as hell and still paying $200 a month for like twice a week back then. I mean, it was, it's always been expensive and it was really expensive <laughs> back then. And I was a young dude, not making a lot of money and trying to do everything I could to get into it. But, you know, it was, there was like no Nagas. There was no grapplers quests. It was like, there was nothing. So all you could do were like challenge matches, which were great, but I couldn't really figure out, I wanted to do it. I wanted to get booked, but I just didn't, I wasn't connected. I didn't have any relatives or whatever. So the closest thing I, I would started dating this, this girl, this, this stripper, and she was, she didn't get, she didn't get grappling at all, but she really liked pro wrestling. Yeah. And so I started watching that. And, um, and around that time I had really gotten into Andy Kaufman as, cause I, I, I'm like a comedy nerd a little bit. Mm -hmm. And this was way back before the movies or anything like that. And there's a, a really great uh, docu documentary film called I'm from Hollywood. And it was basically about how Andy Kaufman invaded pro wrestling and this whole, it's really a funny, hilarious thing. And so the combination of kind of Andy Kaufman and then my girlfriend, I was like, you know what? I can actually go and get booked and get paid and see the world with pro wrestling. I'm not getting that opportunity with, uh, with uh, grappling or, you know, I, I've never really been into the MMA as much. I just don't like the punching and kicking. It's yeah. I'm not against it. It's just personal preference. You know, some people like vanilla and some people like strawberry. I, I just don't, <laughs> I don't, I'm not as much into that as I am the grappling. I like kind of the, the cerebral part of, of grappling. And um, so anyway, long story short, I, I went to a pro wrestling school and it, it, it's just one of those things when you get into something I don't know. I don't know how to say it. it I won't say that I, it was meant to happen, but it was kind of, it was, it wasn't easy because I was doing all the bumps and taking all the risks and hurting my body and all that, just like pro wrestling does to you. But um, I was having pretty good success, especially for a guy back then. Nowadays, pro wrestling is filled with lanky guys like yeah. Zack Sabre Jr. or, you know, a lot of the guys on NXT aren't even 200 pounds. So, um, there's a real opportunity these days, but back when I was wrestling right around 2000, um, it was all, you had to be jacked, man. You had to look yeah. like Davey boy Smith, man. I mean, you had to yeah, be huge. It was all heavyweights, right? Like the, the, the stars were the, the, the big heavyweights. Uh, I mean, I don't, even know, like, like even in the WWE, right? Stone cold and 
the rock like uh, you were jacked dude i mean you yeah. had to be on juice and and taking 50 protein shakes a day i mean <laughs> it, for me it just was difficult but i despite that i was having a lot of success and um you know i ended up getting booked on the warp tour we uh mm-hmm. i i toured the united states doing it was pretty grueling we were doing two matches a day every day for a whole summer i mean it pretty much it was just you know most pro wrestlers who even have a grueling schedule they're wrestling once or twice a week um, and they do that over extended period, but I was doing it every day, twice a day, yeah. and it was killing me. So anyway, I, because of my interest in grappling, I would always talk about it to the guys in the back and to the promoters and stuff. And they were always like, oh, man, you, do you know about Luthez? And do you know about Carl Gotch? And, you know? and so I was like, no, but I started looking into it, and I was like, oh, these are my people. This is uh, pro wrestling, but competitive pro wrestling. This is like grappling. Uh, this is speaking to me. And so at that exact moment is when Sakuraba started cutting through all the Gracies and, um, it was mind blowing. And he kept saying that it was pro wrestling and saying Billy Robinson. And I was like, I got to figure this shit out. And so the rest is history around 2003. I started scientific wrestling and I actually started scientific wrestling only because, you know, I had my master's in, in financial math. And so, mm you know, I'm like a, a finance and entrepreneur nerd, but, um, uh, and I graduated 2002 with my master's 2003. I started the company, but not, I honestly didn't really have any idea to start anything. I just was looking at my tax returns and how much I was spending on related wrestling reta- related materials from camps to videos to, you know, uniform and all, all that kind of stuff. I was like, I need a tax write off. So I just started this company to start writing off all the things I was buying. And then eventually I just was like, well, shit, I might as well create some products. And, you know, now, 17 years later, here we are. <laughs> now, uh, how, how deep were you into catch wrestling when you started scientific wrestling? You just started it just on a whim and you're like, for the tax write off. You were still living in San Francisco, right? Or the city? No, I'd, I'd already moved down to Los Angeles. Oh, okay. I, moved to, I moved to Los Angeles in probably uh, 2003. I had just up in. So I just graduated 2002 for in San Francisco. I went to a university called Golden Gate University. Mm-hmm. I graduated 2002. And after that, I had promised a girlfriend that, okay, if you move with me to San Francisco, when I graduate, we can move to LA where she wanted to go. So while I was in San Francisco, I got hooked up with um, a pro wrestling group um, called Pro Wrestling Iron. It was uh, a school run by Donovan Morgan and Mike Modest, and they were kind of the gaijin for um, pro wrestling Noah back then. Um, and, uh, mm. and another guy named Bison Smith that I ended up, uh, that I was at University of Colorado with when he was a linebacker or whatever. And um, their approach, because they were a Japanese style pro wrestling dojo, but they just happened to be here in the States. We just wrestled like, shoot, most of the, like I'd say probably 65, 75% of practice. And the other part was like, bumps and and tricks you know for the show part of it mm-hmm. because the 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 way of training and the, the approach for most of the japanese style of pro wrestling was heavily influenced by guys like billy and carl mm-hmm. and so um that was kind of really i consider that kind of almost my first real flavor of it yeah and then uh after that happened I was just really wanting to learn and, and, you know, because of Sakuraba was really kind of the big inspiration for me to just totally shift away from pro wrestling again, get back into grappling, but there's pro wrestling grappling. Um, 
I kept looking up Billy Robinson, but I was hitting a dead. I, I mean, I was hitting dead ends because he was in mm-hmm. Japan. So I was very lucky that I ended up stumbling. I, you know, because I'm good at research and back then nobody knew how to use the internet. I was able to find Carl Gotch's address, his mailing address. And so in uh, 2004, I was already holding practices of my own just mm-hmm. because I was like, hey, guys, you know, let's get together, just start practicing. You know, it's like grappling, but let's just start throwing in a pin. I was just fooling around 2003. I was holding practices at uh, boxing gyms and some uh, just out on the, in Venice Beach on the, on the beach and stuff with some friends. But um, I eventually got like to the point where, where Carl contacted me. I wrote this letter. And I couldn't believe it. And I was like, holy shit, I'm on the phone with Carl. And so, you know, they call it like remote coaching now where, you know, because of Zoom and COVID or whatever, you know, you can do these kind of things. Well, that's what I was basically doing with Carl. I'm running a practice at Santa Monica High School wrestling gym. Uh, uh, Mark Schultz, the gold medalist Mark Schultz, the one that the Foxcatcher movie was made from. Um, He was a friend of mine and he recommended me to coach Mark Black, who ran the high school uh program at at santa monica high and uh which is totally crazy because that's when ronda rousey was going to that high school and i remember uh people were telling me like oh yeah you should have ronda come in and da 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 and then mark black was like yeah but her mom doesn't want her doing anything but judo so the funny thing is is she could have she very well could have stepped on the mats with us back even that far ago wow i was very lucky because i would run a practice and then go back and talk to Carl and like, man, what about this? Or I kept having this problem or this guy couldn't do this. And he'd be like, I'll do this, do that. You know, so man. I was very lucky that way. And I got to know him. And through Carl, I got to know Fujiwara. Um, and then um, I think that got the interest of Josh Barnett because he's also very obsessed with catch wrestling. Oh, yeah. And so when Josh reached out to me, um, he was wanting to meet Carl. So I was able to make an introduction for for Josh because there was a Japanese magazine that wanted to do a thing on Josh and Carl together. So I helped put that together. And so I asked Josh, cause I'd still been wanting to get with Billy um, after all these years, you know? And so I said, well, do you happen to know Billy? He's like, Oh yeah, I'll introduce you. And so, you know, Josh introduced me to Bill and the rest is history. Man, I <laughs> that's that's kind of how I got into it. I can imagine back then too, uh, you know, you weren't fortunate enough to have these uh, video calls too. And that would have no. been pretty. That would have been pretty interesting to uh, have that uh, back then. But uh, it would have been nice for Carl to be able to see yeah. exactly what I was doing. But at, at, you have to also understand when, when, when you're talking to somebody who understands wrestling as deeply and as profoundly as somebody like Carl or Billy or whoever, yeah. if you tell them what's going on well enough, they know. They could visualize it in their head. You mm-hmm. know, and that's that's where I was very very lucky. But I will say that. The hands-on coaching that I spent with Billy for seven years um, was way more fruitful than the two or three years that I had kind of Carl as this remote coach kind of thing. Because now Billy was hands-on in there and like, no, God damn it, your foot's off half an inch. That's the kind of stuff that Carl couldn't, couldn't do for me. Now, have, have you ever gone over, overseas to like the, the Japan scene? No, uh, Miyato invited me over to the snake pit in uh, Japan. And I know Fujiwara has, um, you know, offered me, you know, if I came out there to, to, that he'd show me about and that kind of stuff. But Fujiwara is getting very, he's 
got to be very old by now. I don't know his exact age, but he's got to be very close to 80. Um, I would love to get over there. That was the one thing, you know, I, when I wrestle, I'm more of a guy that's interested in experience, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And, um, that was one of my big, big goals when I was a pro wrestler that I didn't meet. I mean, I have no shame in failing. I mean, cause I think success is, com- is completely related to the amount of failure. It's just a numbers game. You know, if you're paying attention and working hard and correcting yourself, failures will eventually will lead to success. But sometimes there's a time component and that time component runs out and you just fail. So yeah. um, I never got to go to Japan. That was a huge, huge goal. That's in fact why I went to that pro wrestling Noah dojo is because I was hoping to get booked out in Japan uh, eventually. I never was able to go. Maybe someday, though, I hope. Now, you had seven years with Billy Robinson, and that's, uh, that's uh, part of your entrepreneur skills of writing books, right? Is that the time when you wrote a couple books, right? Well, yeah. Um, so I met Billy uh, in, like, I think it was, like, January of 2007, right at the beginning of 2007. And um, uh, I flew him out, and uh, that's where we, uh, you know, I tried to record as much as I could mm-hmm. because I knew, you know, this stuff is rare. Nobody knows it. Everybody's faking it. And I actually got a line on these top level guys that are highly reputable. I got to start documenting this. Um, and, you know, I could have kept it for myself and made myself some genius guru and stole their ideas or whatever, but that's just not my style. I figured, you know, I'm not the only one. I know other people got to be interested in this. I'm going to put this stuff out. And whoever the hell is interested can, you know, it's like crowdfunding. They can help support the research. They benefit. I benefit. Everybody and, and the old timers benefit. It's a good thing. So that was really my approach. I, I didn't, you know, I've, I've run a, a number of successful companies, sold successful companies. Um, it's a little different because this is a passion play and I'm very, mm-hmm. very much about the quality control. And I, as long as it breaks even, that's my main goal is to make sure that it has utmost integrity and doesn't sell out. So, you know, sometimes I know people are like, oh, how come you aren't, you know, bigger or blah, 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 and catch is great. And I'm like, well, because I'm not like watering it down to the most common denominator, you know, that's not an insult or anything. It's just the guys like Billy and Carl had fucking insane high standards. And I think that's what really makes catch catch wrestling amongst another um, a few other things but these just insanely high standards so so i started with billy uh in 2007 at the beginning and i was trying to figure out you know how in the hell can i grow this as a sport you know like almost from the beginning my vision has been like why isn't this on tv why isn't this like the ufc yeah seems obvious to me um but it's you know i'm 20 years deep and still haven't gotten anywhere i mean i've done a lot of work but we're not Mm -hmm. i don't have a fertita or anybody in the in the wings to throw a bunch of money at this kind of thing but um i i I told billy i was like you know and this is the same thing i did with carl i kind of just shared with him what my vision was and what i what i was really trying to do and they were both very sympathetic to it independently they you know neither one talked to each other they didn't really know each other that well at, at towards the end of their lives and um anyway i was just very fortunate so billy was like hell yeah let's touring and teaching as many fucking people as we could 
for seven years. I mean, it yeah. was a lot, dude. Like I was, I was on the road with Billy like a lot. Yeah, that's, that's cool. I've seen a couple of those old videos that you had on uh, YouTube. Um, I think when Sam Crescent was pretty young at that time, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Sam's been great. Sam, Sam was a, a, an early adopter, uh-huh. you know, and, and a bunch of the guys that are on the coaching catch site, if you go down to the bottom coachingcatch.com, you could see Jesse Mraz, Luis Ojeda, Joel Bain, uh, John Potenza, Sam, mm-hmm. Harry Smith, um, Alex. Um, there, there's a bunch of Alex cook from the UK. Yeah. So a lot of the coaches, um, I follow a lot of them. Uh, when I started digging into it, when I first started jujitsu a couple years ago, I was like, uh, I heard a Neil Melanson podcast and he mentioned catch. And I was like, I was like, ah, oh, what is this? And then, you know, I, I saw, saw your thing and I see like all these like coaching certs and like, but there's, there's nothing like really in, in the Northern California area. I'm in Concord. So I'm very familiar uh, with the San Francisco Bay area. So, oh yeah. So that school was in Hayward. Uh, okay that that i went to okay um yeah so i'm familiar with the area uh and uh my goal i guess is to kind of grow it in the northern california area i know southern california uh, it's bigger uh but it is interesting because i do try and apply a lot of the stuff even though i'm very young and grappling and you know, I, you still got to hone all the skills. Um, I'm, I'm working with John Potenza a little bit, um, with his little one-on-one because that's, if that's all you can get. Yeah. And I, and I, I mean, you know, now with the, all this COVID shit, that's like, that's what you get, even if you're local, it seems yeah. like. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that all the moves um, I'm sure people have seen like black belts and jujitsu have seen them. Um, I just don't see them being applied uh, as much, but um, I do notice uh, they are harder to hit. And this could be my inexperience of just weight distribution and all that, but because jujitsu guys, especially smaller guys have that really good hip movement, right. And they can tuck in real easy and things like that. Um, So some of the moves, what you have to understand, and, and so the, one of the things that I really tried to focus on, the catch wrestling finishing hold. Everybody loves it. Oh, here's this submission here. But mm-hmm. all that, and this is straight from Billy and Carl and my own experience. What the fuck good is it if you can't hit it? It's more important about the setups and the actual wrestling. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you can know all the holds, but you'll never get them. And so in that DVD, I really try to set up this idea of, of how to set these submissions up. What are the transitions? What are the, you know, how is it that you actually move to increase the probability of hitting these more quote unquote exotic moves? But I mean, it's just like an arm bar, okay? A typical jujitsu arm bar where you mount it on the guy, you post, you spin, spin around and take the arm and look how much they're teaching you how to set it up. Mm-hmm. The, the, the actual submission is just, you know, turn the thumb to the sky and get the fulcrum and, and lift your hips and your ass close to the shoulder. That's this much of the whole, f- the rest of it is how do I get into a mounted position or how do I get the guy into a position to where he gives up his arm? And that is the kind of thinking that I think has been lost a lot. A lot of people get seduced by just the submissions because they are super cool. Um, but what good are they if you can't get them? So 
it's more about the setups and the yeah, transitions. Absolutely. So um, in growing catch uh, in these days, especially now that there's so much social media and you, you can, you can broaden it better. Um, how come we ain't seen it that much? I mean, we're starting to see it more and, you know, luckily, you know, uh, Josh Starlord uh, Ledoux, he's actually trying to, he's an yeah, on, entrepreneur in itself and like the yeah. Karan Jacobs versus uh, that uh, heavy leg locker guy, I forget his name, but uh, that's coming up. No, um, Josh, what it's going to take is, is guys doing like what I did when I was young. Mm-hmm. Guys that actually give a fuck about the sport that are on the mat, really like it, but they also have to know how to think like as a business. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not, I'm just going to be straight. Like some of these like more uh, victim mindset, socialist mindset type of people, I'm just going to flat out say it. They don't know entrepreneurship. They know like top down control. Maybe they can help you get in at a public school, but guess what? You already got folk style. You're not going to get anything better than that. Folk style yeah. is already taken over by the state and it's run very efficiently. But if you want to catch wrestling, you're going to need to get people you need a business. And so I've spent probably more time, consistent time, seriously trying to grow this sport than anybody else. I think that's not really a controversial statement. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the first to start up the competitions again. Um, I was the start, first to really start a, a, a serious systematic uh, certification program like this um, to really put out all the DVDs by the original guys. And, you know, so I've been working on this problem for a very long, long time. And, and, and I'm a pretty good entrepreneur as well. And I'm just going to be dead honest with you. And I've been saying this f- since at least 2009. Without financial funding from a huge backer who believes in the vision of catch wrestling, it's going to probably stay where it is now and maybe creep up. Um, guys just like LaDuke, Guys like uh, Johnny Buck, who's also mm-hmm. a badass catch wrestler, who is very, very hot on the entrepreneurial uh, thing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Kenny Lester, who is a very proven entrepreneur. He's been very successful in business. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, when he was younger, when he was in college, he had, he had some successful uh, internet businesses, very successful. Um, and he's a successful wrestler. It's going to take guys like Kenny and LaDuke and Johnny Buck uh, to really move the needle, I think. And they're doing a great job, just like this, uh, this um, fight that LaDuke is promoting, yeah. and I think Kenny's involved. And so the, the challenge is, is without a Fertitta, there's no UFC, okay? Without an Abu Dhabi Sheik, there's no Abu Dhabi Combat Championships. Yeah. You, need, you need money and you need a platform. And we don't have a platform. We just have grassroots. So that's the problem as I see it, the big driver in any interest in catch wrestling and any business in catch wrestling has been ultimately driven by the UFC because that's the closest thing to a platform that we've had that can showcase the, and pride and MMA, but mm-hmm. here in the United States, uh, mostly the UFC. So I tried to build out at first a system like jujitsu where, Oh, how can we get catch wrestling into gyms? Okay. I mean, I've had this certification program for a long time, since mm-hmm. 2007, when I first met Billy. I actually started it before I met Billy. I started it with Dick Cardinal, who is a, a Pacific Northwest um, catch wrestling guy, old timer. And um, I've been doing this for 13 years or whatever now. 
Sure, we've made some inroads and we have some guys and it's only as big as it is now, okay, with the help of everybody else, like Joel Bain and Potenza and everybody else trying to do their stuff. But um, catch wrestling is too hard. Just it. Okay, why aren't there more mixed martial arts gyms? There's BJJ gyms. But if I were to do a comparison, like a pie chart, most of the pie chart is going to be BJJ gyms and not MMA gyms. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I mean, uh, the most successful MMA gyms have BJJ within that gym to... Oh, yeah, but, but, but how many BJJ gyms have no MMA, though? I would right. say the majority of martial arts schools that are oriented towards, you know, grappling, mm -hmm. they ha BJJ is just madly successful. It's just hard to deny that, but that's mm -hmm. because... B, uh, UFC was started by BJJ players, by Horian Gracie. It was set up to showcase Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and it did a great job. And then you had all of the schools in the strip malls show up because of the demand created by the platform of UFC. But the problem is, is BJJ is great uh, for retail martial arts. Like, you know, when these strip mall martial arts, it's fantastic for that because I get to wear a gi so I don't have to get sweat all over, you know, I mean, you get sweat, but not like no gi. <clears throat> I, uh, uh, I could lay on my back. I could start on my knees and all I have to worry about really is submission. Catch wrestling is a lot more like MMA. You start standing up. It's a hell of a lot fucking rougher. You have a lot more injuries and there's two vectors of winning BJJ. It's just like, okay, I'll lay on the ground and you can get a similar workout of yoga. I mean, I've had yoga classes that kick your ass. They're mm -hmm. really, really hard, but it, and it's, to me, it's kind of similar. It's not like crazy CrossFit level effort. It's, it's slow. It's flow. It's good. You get a great workout. You get a little soreness, but you're not destroyed. Catch wrestling is way harder. It's more like MMA because just like MMA, you can win with a pin. I mean, with a knockout or a submission, Catch wrestling is a pin or a submission. Plus you start standing. Plus you've got all these nastier things that you can tend to do. So it's just, it's never going to be adopted in a, in a, in a retail way, the same way mixed martial arts will never be adopted in a retail way. But I think that also has to do with the fact catch wrestling is more of a prize fighting oriented sport mm -hmm. than just an exercise fitness type of thing. You know so what when, I mean? So when you started your, uh, like, you did a couple tournaments, right? Um, yeah, I did some Naga. Okay, so the, well, n not you personally, uh, running them, right? Like, yeah, I, uh, I ran, I ran uh, I've, I've run a few of them. Yeah, I ran the like, first, catch first specific? one hands-on. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, catch. The, was that the one that Karan won? No, that was, no? <clears throat> well, so that was um, actually Snake Pit. So Joel. Okay. Uh -huh. came up through the, the certification system yep. with Billy. And then, you know, a guy like, I, I got to say this. So a guy like Joel Bain um, is, is, is really kind of what I was aiming for was, you know, I feel like a leader creates more leaders type mm -hmm. of program thing, you know, like Joel got into the program, was very serious about it and, and pretends as well. They got into it and then they, they did their cert, and they started their own thing and started trying to build their own thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and they did it without having to talk shit on me. They were, oh, they've always been respectful and cool. And yeah. that was kind of the, the vision for this is just 
to have my candle light a bunch of other candles and those candles light candles and we get it going. You know, I think, mm-hmm. I think that, um, that is really what it's going to take until we get funding is to get guys like, like Joel and John and, and Sam and all these other guys that are out there starting their own thing to work together and do it. And so the, the 2018, I mean, that's been two years now and yeah. there's been nobody, nobody and plenty of opportunities to, to, to have matches and whatever before COVID and nobody's fucking done anything. Joel, Joel really moved the needle on that. So, you know, what actually happened was Joel was just going to have an open tournament, which is similar to what I was doing with the King of Catch. He was like, oh, okay. So he started his own. Well, there was all this fucking childish fucking internet pretending to be yeah. fucking Conor McGregor, you know, but not yeah. really yeah, yeah. pulling it off. Bullshit. And, uh, and Josh Barnett got sick of it and said, okay, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I'm going to be at this fucking tournament. And all of a sudden, you have a huge name guy like Josh. It was like, then all of a sudden, all the eyes turned on the fucking tournament. And Joel's like, shit, dude. And, you know, Joel was having, uh, I don't want to go too into into his personal life, but he was having some pretty serious health and personal issues at the time, too. And and he still pulled it off and threw a bunch of his own money into it. I mean, this is how you can tell when somebody's passionate. He's not trying to fucking do anything he didn't compete he didn't he just was trying to make some for everybody else you know and took a loss anyway josh throws down his hat we're like fuck this has got to change from an open tournament to an invitational and uh current i think had something like six months or however long i mean he it was quite a long time he had to prepare um but joel approached me and we had like six weeks and joel was like dude i'm freaking out this is way bigger i need your help and i said okay we'll We'll try to figure this out, you know, and he did, he and his wife did uh, probably the lion's share. I just gave some guidance and some mm-hmm. ideas to make things a little easier, but um, we booked it. We booked yeah. it with a, a, the people that we knew in our Rolodex and they had literally like a month to prepare. And most of these guys were closer to my age. You know, yeah. I'm going to be 47 tomorrow. So, you know, guys like Brandon Ruiz, who are friends of mine and stuff did it as a personal favor with zero idea of even the rules they're like fuck yeah i'll do it come on <laughs> you know they're just so game and so uh uh we put that show together and I- i'll tell you so it was a bit of a wake-up call because you know here it was the first time that we were really going to be able to get some decent named guys i mean fuck you have josh barnett on the card um and uh i think we had 150 people show up yeah that was like to me, I was like, these are big name guys. Maybe some of them are a little older or whatever. I get it, but that's what we could afford and what we could make yeah, happen. Understand. And we had 150 people. Now, of those 150, they were hardcore. They flew from around the country. We had people flying from Japan. So it's a hardcore fucking fan base, but it's fucking teensy weensy. So, you know, and that, so that was not actually a king of catch thing. That was. I think the rules were somewhat similar and I consulted on the rules, uh, but <clears throat> that was a snake pit uh, uh, deal run as a, a snake. And so the belt was all snake pit and all this kind of stuff, not King of catch. I, I haven't run a King of catch probably now in three or four years. Um, I had the help of a, a very good friend of mine, uh, Dan Kanagi um, ran a bunch of them after I kind of started getting burned out and having to focus on other things. Uh, he, he kept it going uh, for a couple of years and ran. And that's when actually we ran into Johnny Buck. Johnny Buck 
uh, I think he won two or three times and he, you know, he's really tough. Uh, what was the rule set? Uh, was there time limits on those? Um, no, no. Okay. I mean, so each fall I think was 10 minutes or something like that. Okay. Um, but like, so there is a great match, um, with, uh, Luis Ojeda, Mm-hmm. who is one of our coaches, but he's also, I think, a four, three or four-time king of catch wrestling champ. And he had a match against a, a Sambo guy named Anthony Cincinnati, who was very tough. And that match, you know, people saw these matches in 2018 and were like, oh, yeah, geez, you're wrestling for half hour or whatever. Like that match between Luis Ojeda and Anthony Cincinnati, I think, went 55 minutes or something like that. Most people, it- I mean, most people can't even just walk for 55 minutes straight, let yeah. alone – get in a ring with another dude trying to take your fucking head off and they're pretty skilled, you know? Do you think if you cater to the fan base, like where like, uh, like shortening the time and emphasizing more of the pin style, um, that could help out a little bit. I mean, at this I, point, know. at this point, you know, it, it's what you have to do is kind of in entrepreneurship or in marketing. Um, they call it like a split test where yeah. you segment out, the audience and you see what plays well and what doesn't they do this movies all the time they'll play one ending for one focus group and another ending for another focus group and then the one that's the more successful is the one that everybody sees in hollywood right and that's why you have like the snyder cut of batman or of super Mm -hmm. friends or whatever the fuck that movie was (laughs) but uh uh we probably need to do that we probably need to tweak some of the rules like that that 2018 uh show i learned a lot um one, I learned a lot about booking, you know, like you, you have to get guys that are the same age, the same, you know, like it, it was just, it was a little bit of a freak show. So it was mm-hmm. pretty volatile. Um, the other thing is I think it favored, um, it favored the, the athlete that was the most conditioned to both cardiovascular conditioning, but also inoculated to punishment. And clearly, I mean, if you watch the tapes, you never see Curran really do anything that's highlight film worthy. Mm-hmm. He just waits till these older dudes gas out and beating them up. And it's kind of an old Ollie Ropadope type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I would probably do is we had it as you had to win uh, two out of three. I would probably just say best, best of three. So they, because so for example, like Buck and, and Curran, I think they had like seven, seven different where they, where they wrestled because then they started wrestling not to lose, which is different than less wrestling to win. Mm-hmm. It's, it's important. And so as long as nobody racked up that second win, they just kept resetting and, and it was a draw until they could finish. Yeah. Right. So if you do three, that means you get three matches and that's it. Uh, maximum. Yeah. But if you win the first two, then you only wrestle two and that's it. So best of three, I think is better than best two of three. That was a huge lesson. Um, there were some other things too, I think like in today's day and age where everybody is, I mean, you're making like decisions about your genetic material for all eternity with like a swipe, you know what I mean? These mm-hmm. people, there's no attention span. So I do think that what we would probably have to do is make sh- the best, the best of three versus best two or three would ensure that it would be a 10 minute battle yeah. between these guys. You know what I mean? Probably 10 to 15 mm-hmm. minute battle instead of 40 minutes each match. I mean, that, that night went, went on for like six hours. It was like insane. It was exciting. And I'll tell you, everybody in that room, it was electric. It, it, so while it showed me there was zero demand for catches catch can right now, it, 
100% verified and, and motivated me that the product is fucking tight. It was an amazing night. And you can ask anybody that was there. It was an amazing experience to be in that room that night. That's the truth. But without money, dude, without a big backer, that, that's it, dude. It's going to be dudes like Joel or myself just sinking fucking money and everybody talking shit and complaining about it. That's just, yeah. that's just the world we live in and it sucks. And if you really care about catch, you just keep going anyway. You don't give a fuck. Okay. Yeah. yeah fans. We're just going to keep trying, man. Whether you guys are fickle or not, we're just going to keep trying. So, so hopefully somebody out there listeners got some big money and will throw, <laughs> throw a check into some catch yeah. wrestling. Um, so the grassroots and like a lot of your interviews were a lot of old school guys, right. That, uh, that, um, wrestled in the, in the carnivals, right? Some of them. Yeah. Like Dick. I know. Um, uh, there's not too many carnivals these days, but, um, why not just go back to grassroots and put it in a, in some sort of carnival aspect. So when people are walking around, they're like, Oh, what's this? Oh, what is this? Uh, some wrestling catch wrestling. Dude, I know it could is- be like, uh, I feel you. I've thought all these things. Actually, one one of the things that I wanted to do was to, at one time, I, uh, I, I was when I was in LA, I was connected to a lot of reality show producers, and I wanted mm-hmm. to actually make a, a game show, uh, based on the carnival vibe, where it was like American Gladiators, but you get in with a catch wrestler, and you get to have various rules change and stuff like that. That never really took off. Um, the problem with doing uh, the way it was. 50 years ago is people didn't fucking sue over everything, man. People sue off of fucking your coffee's too hot at McDonald's now. Yeah. There's, there's no business owner in their fucking right mind. Uh, that unless you're in a traveling carnival, that's going to be out of state, out of jurisdiction the next fucking day. (laughs) That's going to fucking do that because you make money by beating people up. Like that's the, that's the shtick. That's the gimmick in those kind of, you know, the house always yeah. wins. It's like gambling, but with violence. <laughs> yeah. And that ain't, that's not going to, today's in liabilities, there's just no fucking way. Okay. Yeah, I know. It, it sucks that the world's coming to that where, you know, you got to print labels on a cup of coffee where it says, this is hot, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so you don't get it's where we're that. at, man. I know. Yeah. So um, all the wrestlers would have to have like tattoos, like we'll yeah. fucking kill yeah. you, you know, like, like, oh shit, maybe I shouldn't get in the ring. Yeah. Um, or like their headgear says like you could possibly get injured or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so with your entrepreneur mind, you got this crazy mind. Like you're like a mad scientist with entrepreneurship because <laughs> yeah, like from, from pre <laughs> and that's how I'm going to explain it because like from podcasts I heard before, like you're in the, uh, the money market, right? Like, the uh, you're, you're trading, weren't you? Were you doing trading? And in- well, I'm trading now. Okay, I, I used to, now. well, so I, like I, like I was saying earlier, when I was in San Francisco, I got my, my master's degree in, in, that's actually it right here. This like fucking, well, congrats right there. That's a, that's always a big achievement right there. Well, that's 18 years ago, man. <laughs> I mean, that's 18 years ago. That's like that, that fucker yeah. can vote. That could go to war. <laughs> it could smoke cigarette. Can't drink, can't drink, Yeah. but it could do all the other good yeah. stuff. So anyway, um, financial engineering is really, um, it, it's, it's the study of, fuck, how do you explain it? So it's, it's complicated. Basically, most people call, uh, describe it as financial mathematics. So, but really what you're working with a lot of are, are derivatives 
Mm-hmm. Um, the reason they call it engineering is because you're trying to come up with new financial products using other financial products as building blocks, right? So for example, there's something called uh, a strangle. It's a kind of options position made out of buying a put and a call that allows you to trade off the volatility of a stock, whether it's going up or down, you can make money. The only way you lose money is if it sits still. I mean, that's a, it's called a synthetic yeah. security. You just made it up. And they do that. You could do that with in, in all kinds of different fields. You don't have to do it just with stocks or options. Uh, you could do it with swaps. Like you could swap out fixed income rate and interest rates for, for variable interest rates. There's all the, it's a very huge field actually. And I worked in um, financial engineering and I worked as a statistician for a number of years. Um, but I never, I, I always, I'm definitely an entrepreneur because yeah. um, while I was very capable of doing the analytics and I made these co- corporations fucking bajillions of dollars, millions of dollars uh, with the work that I did with them, um, I hated having a boss, man. I hated it. It's just like, because half the time they're stupid. You don't want to do what they say because you're like, that's fucking stupid. Why? Am I? Okay, it's just a job. And I just can't hack that. I mean, if something's stupid, I can't deal with it. So if I feel like I can do it better, I just go and do it. And that's mm-hmm. part of what happened with scientific wrestling. I saw the state of catch wrestling in 2003 and I was like, this is a fucking joke. No wonder nobody takes it serious. Where's the fucking competitions? Where's, where's training with fucking somebody who's actually verified? I mean, so anyway, that's kind of financial engineering deals in that area. And so because of that, I worked in, uh, investment banking, mortgage banking, um, energy derivatives, all these different things from probably 2000. Well, I actually started in financial software in, two, in 1997 with a company in, out of San Francisco called Advent, Advent mm-hmm. Software. They were down on Howard Street somewhere and um, south of market-ish. A- anyway, um, I worked with them and I did a hedge fund and mutual fund accounting software for them. Finished my master's degree worked in uh, as statistician for a minute. And then I worked in mortgage or uh, investment banking for a while. And then I moved to mortgage banking. And that was kind of when like all the financial crisis shit was building up. Yeah. I had people on my LinkedIn, you know, oh, Jake was the only one saying anything back in 2004, you know, like four or five years yeah. before. I could just see it. I'm like, what's up with all these fucking liar loans, man? Like these Alte loans. How is it that a fucking plumber you're not going to verify his income, but you're going to give him a million dollars for a house in Pasadena. You don't see that's going to end up like a fucking shit show, like in just a year. You know what I mean? Like the demand for plumbing goes down or something happens and he's locked into a 30 year mortgage on a fucking $10,000 a month fucking mortgage. Mm -hmm. How's that work? That's not work. That's I mean, it's just common sense. But the thing is, is the people that were above me that hired me because they get these fat hundred thousand million dollar bonuses at the end of the year had to do with these key performance indicators and they had to just keep selling to whoever they say they're like no you know we need to keep these numbers up they didn't give yeah. a fuck because you know they were out as soon as the financial crisis happened they were out with their fucking money and you know who yeah. gives a fuck yeah. so um i saw the writing on the wall and i just was like man this is not going to be good and i don't want to be here and i don't want to go to jail because i don't want to be associated with this because I've seen shit like this happen before. And um, so I switched companies to a big bank I was working with. It was the sixth largest mortgage originator in the United States. The first one to get nationalized during the 2008 crisis, um, IndyMac Bank. But they owned a subsidiary that was 
called Financial Freedom, which was the, at the time, now I think Wells Fargo might be number one. I, I don't keep track of these things anymore. This was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they were the largest mortgage originator, uh, reverse mortgage originator in the United States. And so I went and started developing uh, some valuation models for them. I became, my title was, I was an associate vice president, but my title was manager of, of modeling, you know, not models like hot chicks, like financial models. <laughs> and so uh, I was there working and I just was getting sick of it. And, but I, this guy was a great, my boss was great. He was the first boss I ever liked, but he was also very entrepreneurial. And I could tell he was getting sick of all the bullshit too. And he kept asking me, he's like, you know, cause back then reverse mortgages were new and you couldn't get data. Like he kept bugging me. Like I need market share data. I need to know what the other guys are doing. And I'm like, these are not publicly fucking traded companies. I don't have a 10 K where I can go get the data because they're not publicly traded. They can hold all their shit secret. And nobody will know how many clients they have or anything like that. But he kept bugging me. And I was like, I'm like, dude, you're not giving me a budget for corporate espionage. I can't like, hire a private detective to go in and pretend to be somebody else and get this data and steal it for you. I'm not going to do that. And I'm like, how can I get to solve this problem? And so one day we, he had weekly meetings every Friday, everybody on the team, he'd have a one-on-one meeting. And at one of those meetings, I said, I, I solved the problem. And he's like, Oh, awesome. 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 Cause I could clearly tell his KPI was tied to, to solving this problem. Mm-hmm. And so I said, KPI is key performance indicator okay. and it's used to judge your bonuses at the end of the year. I was year. about Anyways, to ask you that. <laughs> so, so I said to him, I said, well, here's, here's what we're going to have to do. I'm just going to tell you what's going to, I could solve this problem and I could probably make us more money than working here, but you're going to have to quit your job. I'm going to have to quit my job and we're going to have to take one of the data guys with us. Um, and we're going to basically create a blind database where we get non-disclosure agreements and we go to all the big banks and we, say, look, you can sue us. You can hold us liable. We're going to keep this data secret. Give us your data so we can aggregate it into reports about the overall market. And nobody will see your individual data. It'll just be like, what is the pie and where does your company fit in the pie and sell it back to people. And so we start, I started that, uh, with those guys and, uh, it's still going strong. I sold out my shares years ago, but, um, anyway, so entrepreneurship to me, it's like, you know, you see all these fucking preppers and shit, you know, like mm-hmm. they got their AK-47s and their fucking beef jerky making machine and they're ready to hunker down. I mean, I just look at entrepreneurship like as a funk, as a, as a part of that survivalist kind of mindset. Cause once you yeah. figure out how to make money, it's like hunting. Like you just, you know, you can always make a fucking living. Like you just, you're not having to kiss somebody's ass and have a boss. Like everybody looks at like what I do is high risk. And I'm like, dude, you don't understand fucking risk. All your eggs are in one basket. Your boss has a bad day. You're fucking out, dude. Mm -hmm. Or, Or, you know, you fuck up, you're out. But guess what? I got like thousands of bosses. They're called clients. And if I fuck up with one, I try to do what I can, but it's, you know, if it doesn't work out, it's okay because I have all these other ones. I have to, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you're actually diversifying your risk by figuring out this fucking problem. But most people just like anything, they're just too timid and they just prefer to go the easy route. And so they just try to get a job, It is, but it's actually not the easy route. It's actually, the, I think that's the hardest fucking, I could not do it. I can't have uh, a job. Yeah. I mean, I have a, I have a day job. Um, I do construction. Do. Yeah. Construction management and estimating. Um, 
And yeah, that is a hard part for people to kind of be like, I want to do this, but it's the fear of not being able to make it right. And a lot of people have that fear. What it's the same with anything. It's like, if yeah. you want to be a musician or you want to be a, a pro wrestler, or you just got to fucking throw yourself out there and start experimenting because you're wasting time. When you first realize boss isn't for you and you want to do your own thing, entrepreneur, uh, what kind of struggles uh, at first did you face? Uh, you're a pretty intellectual guy, especially with numbers and stuff like that from, from what I hear and from what I see on Instagram too with your, uh, your little uh, Robin Hood account. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, so trading's <laughs> been fun. Yeah, yeah trading's so, uh, been really fun. So did you have any like struggles, hardships that you had to face? Well, oh, every day. I, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I know on the catch side, there's plenty of struggles, but like what about on – on this uh, business side, especially uh, with the new thing you're starting too, right? Well, so, you know, uh, the, the struggles that people see with catch wrestling, um, that's not me really trying to, to, to make a lot of money. Yeah. Okay. That's me fighting for the integrity of a sport and, and for what I think based upon my close relationship with guys like Billy and Carl, what the sport should entail and, mm-hmm. the, and the standards of it. So a lot of the battles you see there, um, are, you know, it's a combination of like, how do I keep at least breaking even? So I'm not losing money on it. Um, maintain the integrity, but keep people in it, but not water it down. Cause there's so many people that want to get involved. Um, and, and I appreciate that, but their involvement, honestly, their skill level is not beyond any involvement beyond the fan level mm-hmm. and that's super important without fans fans are the most important fucking thing i don't yeah. know why everybody looks down on just being a fan but they just don't bring anything to the fucking table they don't they don't really bring anything to the table and and even worse is somebody comes in and they're unprofessional and so they end yeah. up fucking undoing all the work that these people have been uh, countless people have been fucking trying to sacrifice and make this go um so that's that's the kind of the struggles I think a lot of people see with catch wrestling, and it is what it is, man. Um, that's just how it is. But you have the same struggles anywhere. Like so, you know. I think what happens is people have this illusion of safety. Um, it's an illusion, though, when you have a job. You're like, oh well, I get a paycheck every week. Yeah, da 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 da. I got a good da mm-hmm. da da. Mm-hmm. You don't. The cash flows into the business you work for are variable. They depend on a sales team. So this illusion that you have a steady job, the second that sales team doesn't do their fucking job or the market turns south and demand dries up for whatever reason that you may not have any control over, like a fucking virus from a bat, there's no more sales revenue. When there's no more sales revenue, there's no more money for people who are fixed cost assets, you know, and you get laid off. And so the illusion that you have a steady gig is a complete 100% illusion and you're putting all your eggs in one basket. Now, having a job, is there anything morally wrong with it? No, of course not. I think there's, it's more, if you have no money, it's very moral to get a job because then you're not a burden on anybody else. You could support other people, uh, whether it's a family or by purchasing goods and supporting other businesses. So I think having a job is a great thing. I just personally feel like it's a huge risk. Now, I think it is easier, you know, especially when you work for a big company, you can get lost in the mix and fool around and dick around and nobody knows that you're fucking yeah. collecting a check and not actually doing any work. That grosses me out personally. I have no 
fucks with my self-respect. It's gross. I don't like it, so I don't do it. Like, plus, as an entrepreneur, yeah, it's variable. And it, there's tough times when you're like, fuck, how am I going to even make my mortgage payment and shit? Like, that happens. Like, it's a real thing. But there's also months where I make a hell of a lot more than I would have ever made working for somebody else. So having a, a variable cash flow or an irregular cash flow is not as bad as people think. I mean, it's just like surfing, dude. Like if, if an ocean was fucking uniform and flat, you couldn't surf it. You just sit there and float and floating's cool, but it's more fun to surf, man. You get to check out the waves and maybe you crash, but you get a great ride. I mean, that's just kind of how I look at it. So for somebody who's trying to start out, you have to start out with a job. Mm -hmm. Unless you're born rich or you have investors in Rolodex somehow, uh, uh, which is not most people and certainly wasn't me. I, I grew up blue collar. I was the first one in my immediate family, in my whole family to get a fucking degree, um, and let alone a master's degree. So like, I'm all about it. You got to get the income going first. Yeah. You know what I mean? And once you get the income, then you have to start really controlling your own spending. These are all basic fucking things, yeah. but- you know, you don't learn them in high school. No. You got to control your spending so that your income is always more than your outgo. Then you got to start figuring out things like marketing and sales and, and, and how to actually deliver the goods. And so, you know, the good news is, is that I've never seen it easier for somebody to become an entrepreneur than today. You could start up an Uber. You could start up a fucking eBay thing. You could start up a Shopify page. You could do be a YouTuber and get that monetized. I mean, there's so many fucking ways now. It's pretty mind blowing. Surprises me more people aren't trying. I guess it's uh, the knowledge aspect, right? And like I said before, it's the fear. But I mean, look at John Potenza. John yeah. Potenza uh, is sitting in Arizona, sweating his ass off. I'm sure he has some some AC pumping right now. But when he goes outside, he's gonna be sweating his ass off. He's actually said he, he's not sweating his ass off because he's more in the mountainous area. Oh, that's so. right. He's up in the hills. He's not down like in Phoenix and yeah. stuff. But anyway, so he's chilling out in Arizona, getting to spend quality time with his family, right? Oh, yeah. And yet you're paying him and you're in a whole other part of the country because he figures something out. Yeah. He's like, there's going to be somebody up in Concord who is interested enough in catch wrestling that, 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 that you know, this information is worth more than the X amount of bucks that it costs to buy it. And here you are, you know what I mean? So it, it's, it's like anything, man. It, I, I, you don't have to be fucking like good at math. You, it takes like fourth grade level math to be an entrepreneur. Like, I'm not joking. Like, yeah. you don't really get further than like fucking fractions of decimals, man. It, you know, division, yeah. multiplication, <laughs> addition, subtraction. You don't have to do much more than that to be a, a successful entrepreneur to do accounting. Um, it's just, it's like anything. You'd have to fucking want it. And most people yeah. are just satisfied enough that they don't fucking, you know, they'll sit down and watch Netflix all night or scroll through their phone all night instead of fucking cracking a book on accounting or entrepreneurship or it's just- I, th I think it's also confident, confidence and drive too, right? Like you were saying, like you need to have that drive because uh, most entre entrepreneurs, like what you see on the screen and what they post and stuff, there's like- hours behind that it's that, the same thing that drives yeah. somebody to be a gold medalist yeah they're fucking spending hours fucking doing it when somebody else isn't and 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 it is mental 
it, it, it's it's ultimately a a mental or spiritual or what it's an internal thing that you have to be fucking motivated you have to want it and that's whether again it's you you want to be a concert pianist or you want to be a fucking uh business person or a champion fighter you just have to fucking do it like better and more than everybody else and pay attention and 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 then a little bit of its luck and a lot of its effort you know um so there's two other businesses that I've heard you mention. What is the, your, what is it? Booties, Budista? Yeah. Budista. Yeah. Uh, how's that doing so far? Well, you just, it just, it's, it's still in like the, the starting phase, right? Yeah. But dude, that starting phase started in 2016. Okay. So there we go. So, you know, nobody sees all that shit. Yeah. That's and right. I'm not a person to fucking, when it's ready to launch and it looks good and I'm ready to make some money, that's when people start seeing what I've been fucking cooking yeah. for a long time. You know, I'm not going to wheel it out while it's still in the kitchen or I'm still at the grocery store getting the recipe together. Yep. Like, so, okay. So, um, most people probably listening to this are aware of my efforts with, with wrestling and scientific wrestling and, yep. and, um, I've treated it as a business, but it's very much, like I said, it's like a break even. It's more of a passion business. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not really looking to sell out. You know, I'm maintaining a lot of integrity on it. So yeah. instead of going for profit, um, I tend to do that. I'd, <laughs> I'd be a lot wealthier if I just didn't give a fuck, but I just, I, it grosses me out. I can't, I just can't live with myself sometimes. Like, I just like, oh dude, I can't do that. That's like, not, I just, oof. so anyway, uh, my wife and I, when I quit all of the working for other people stuff, my wife, um, who uh, is an entrepreneur, a very successful entrepreneur as well, um, she was working with um, this software company when we first met. And so because I'm crazy into software and had a lot of perspective on how to run a business in software, um, and she had this, this company that she was working for. I decided to help her with this company and there was another partner. So there was like basically the three of us and we built this company up and it's a software. It's a, a FinTech, which is financial tech. It's just basically like a does point of sale and ticketing for amusement parks and family entertainment centers. Okay. And it's a, it's a good company. It's 25 years old. It's wins awards. It's a big company. Uh, so my wife and I have been working on that probably she's been there 20 years. I think I've been there 15 years as long as I've been married to her and, um, and it's going good, but you know, dude, like this year, nobody could have fucking anticipated this fucking bullshit, all this mm -hmm. lockdown yeah. fucking shit, which I personally think is a gross overreaction. I'm not making light of anything. I'm saying from a truly studied perspective of risk, I think that the way that it was handled was fucking ridiculously stupid and overreaching mm -hmm. and caused far more damage uh, than the than the actual virus. And I'm not alone in that. I mean, guys like, you know, the head of Stanford epidemiology, John Ioannidis is one of the people that I'm following that, that is in agreement with that. Um, anyway, our software caters to the amusement and, uh, and family entertainment centers, and they're all locked down. They're closed by government mandate. So all our income dried up, boom. You don't, I mean, you don't even see, nobody sees that coming. Yeah. Social distancing is the exact opposite of wrestling. There's social distance. You can't wrestle with social distance. You can't. So uh, two of my main income drivers 
boom, gone, right? Um, so, you know, what do you do? <laughs> now, fortunately, I've lived through the 2008 crisis and had to fucking deal with that. You, you have to keep a bunch of different fires burning and you have to just uh, kind of decentralize your risk. You have to distribute your risk a little bit. So um, about six years ago, we, you know, I had to move to Colorado. I moved, we were in Utah for a while because that's where her family was from. So when, mm -hmm. when she was having babies and, and, and we were growing our family, it was nice to have her family there as a support when you have little kids. Yeah. Well, my folks are uh, quite a bit older. And so um, uh, like, for example, my mother, we just moved her in before Christmas. She's 76. She's still great and all that, but it, she's just getting to an age where I'm not going to put her in an old age home. I don't feel right about that personally, not judging anybody just for me. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So I decided to move back to Colorado, but when we moved back to Colorado, you know, cannabis had just gotten not only decriminalized, but legalized. So people mm -hmm. are making money with it now. So um, I looked at this asset that we had, this software package, and I was like, why don't we just start working on making this package apply to the cannabis space? And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not going to cost us much. It's just a little bit of programming time to change out some of the point of sale things based on legal parameters. Yeah. And so... You know, I was sitting in the shower one day where all great ideas are born and I was sitting there and, uh, you know, this is on my mind and I'm thinking about it. And I'm excited about the, the concept and playing with the ideas and how I could port it over. And, and just the name Badista came to me and I thought, well, this is great because I, I, what, how it came to me is I wanted to figure out how through branding and product delivery, I could make cannabis sales as easily as Starbucks was selling caffeine mm -hmm. as a drug. That's all mm -hmm. cat. Starbucks yeah. is a ca caffeine dispensary yeah, 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 is yeah. how I was looking at it. Right. And they're massively fucking successful. So you even noticed I used kind of some of the same colors as Starbucks in my Badista uh, logo. Okay. So, but anyway, so I'm like thinking about it and I'm like barista, barista, because the barista is the one using the point of sale. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I'm like buddista. And I'm like, is that even a fucking word? I look it up. It means fucking Buddha. It means Buddha in Spanish and Buddha is a euphemism for weed. So now I'm like, this has got to be the fucking name. So anyway, we've had lots of ups and downs. So 2016 fucking um, Trump gets elected. And um, who is the fucking guy with the ears? That was the attorney general. I can't remember his name. Uh, Trump hates him now, but the little attorney general, he's a dick. He hated fucking weed. So long story short, the guy I was in talks to put this software in 2016 into a dispensary. It was the, the highest grossing dispensary in all of Colorado up in Manitou Springs at the time. Um, but when Trump won the election, the owner freaked out because uh, he, this, this attorney general is so anti-weed, he decided to get out of the business. So again, the fucking floor yanked out from underneath me and I've been still working for four years. Now we're actually to a point where we've got um, uh, a pretty good chance of raising investor money and stuff. So that's, that's Badista. But now I have to pivot because the other software company is the government has shuttered us. I can't make money with that. I cannot, I have fucking three yeah. kids yeah. and my mom live in, we have a family here with six people in this house with a, a substantial mortgage payment because Colorado is getting California prices now. And it's like, I got to fucking figure this out. So Badista is one thing. The other thing now is that I figured, you know, I'm really, I, I do like trading 
because I figure trading is like entrepreneurship. You're basically mm -hmm. betting on your view of the world being right and other people being wrong and making money off of that. It's like sports betting, right? You really know everything about a fucking athlete and you go get one of these sports at betting apps and you bet your money and then the fight happens and you either make money or you lose. And there's people who can do that professionally, bookmakers, you know, they know how to make money uh, betting on athletes. Well, stocks is very similar, you know, you, and, and it doesn't just have to be companies. You could trade kind of the economy. So sometimes mm -hmm. like when there's going to be a new war and if oil is cheap, I'll buy it. If there's going to be a war in the middle East, because then I know then oil prices are going to go up and I'll make some money off of that. So, um, so I started trading uh, again. I hadn't been trading for probably about 10 years just because I didn't really need to. And I kind of got burned out on it after the last uh, credit crisis. I made a lot of money, but I just was like, ah, whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I said, sometimes I get bored with shit. But um, I, so I picked up trading again. So I got Badista going. I started doing trading. And then, you know, one of the things, as you could tell maybe in this conversation, I am pretty passionate about um, not just coaching, grappling, but I think, you know, entrepreneurship. I really believe in it. Um, yeah. I've lived it. And I think it's a better way of living, honestly. I just don't think people know how to do it or know anybody who really knows how. They don't have a mentor. So, um, so yeah, so to allude to, I think you were alluding to the, to the other yeah. uh, project yep. that I'm starting, and that's Thales, uh, Thales Coaching. And that is uh, about, it's life coaching, but it's really focused on bi uh, business and financial coaching. All right, yeah, so... Um... So that's uh that's your latest and greatest, right? People can actually contact you to uh, learn more about that, right? Yeah. So if you're interested, uh, if you're interested in any of the stuff, and I appreciate, um, I really do appreciate you talking with me and helping yeah. me get the uh, word out. And, you know, scientific wrestling. If you're into into grappling, that's you know, I have a lot of pro wrestling people that are into scientific wrestling. I have a lot of MMA people, but our emphasis is really on kind of the grappling community. Um, scientificwrestling.com or at scientific wrestling on Instagram is probably the two best places to go. If you want, um, if you want to learn about Badista, you can just go to the website, badista.com, B-U-D-I-S-T-A.com. Um, and then the coaching, I haven't set up a website yet. I'm still trying to figure out exactly how I'm going to run the model. Um, but I'm kind of in the gathering stage of like, seeing if people would be interested and see if, you know, like building a list basically to see what kind of demand there is for these, these kind of, uh, this kind of information for people who are interested in either in their personal finances in shape, uh, learning how to trade so you don't lose your money. That's where most people, do. Most yeah. people lose their money when they throw it in the market. Um, and, you know, uh, entrepreneurial coaching, like what do you actually do to get stuff yeah. going? And the yeah. best place for that right now, I do own the, uh, the web, the URL, thales.coach but I haven't put any up there yet. Okay. So Instagram is probably the best way to contact me. I'm going to be running a, a mastermind off of Facebook until the website is up. And I, cause I need to figure out the parameters inside the website. I want to have like um, quizzes and some videos and that just takes a while for me to launch. And like I said, I don't really want to show all that until I'm actually ready to, to present, but I am doing one-on-one -on -one coaching traditional kind of, financial coaching and, and entrepreneurial coaching. Uh, and the best way to contact me there is just the, uh, uh, in the Instagram, which is at Thales, which is T H A L E S dot coaching. So Thales coaching, Thales dot coaching. 
That's awesome. Uh, this is exactly why I wanted you on because you're you're everywhere. You got you got so many so many little things. Um, you know, I'm always curious on entrepreneurship. When I say fear, I have that fear, and just because I'm I'm used to I'm blue collar worker too. Like I've been yeah. in the field, and it's kind of like that's all I know. It's just like uh, it's hard just, because a lot like, of people like my kids are going to have the benefit of having grown up with entrepreneur parents, mm-hmm. and yeah. honestly, generational wealth isn't just money it's also tricks of the trade that's why somebody like the rock is so successful he's a third generation pro wrestler man it took three generations for that genetic material to reach where he's the biggest box office draw in the in the world you know Mm -hmm. so it does take some time to build up i think but there are outliers and there's no reason why people shouldn't be learning it so for example somebody like yourself you know what you probably want to do is you want to just get your feet wet you want to start figuring something out that's low risk. Um, you know, I th- there's a lot of people that look down on multi-level marketing. I don't think it's that awesome, but I could tell you a couple products I buy that are from multi-level marketing. I think prepaid legal is a fantastic fucking product. They're listed on the, on the stock exchange. This is a legitimate company, been around for 40, maybe 50 years. And it's all sold through MLM. Okay. That doesn't, I'm not saying do Amway and Amway is fine. People can make money with that or essential oils like doTERRA and shit. Just it, it's a great way to get your feet wet, wet with very little risk because yeah. you got to start developing other skills and really you got to develop skills of discipline. So you control your spending and sales. How do I go and talk to people and ask for a fucking check? Those are two things people, most people don't like. Yeah. They don't, they don't like discipline and they don't like fucking just being like, Okay, so you like this thing? What's your credit card number? They yeah, have a fucking big yeah, hang up with that. You yeah. got to get over that shit, dude. You got to believe what you're doing and you got to like know that don't get involved selling something that you don't think is right for somebody. That's the easiest mm-hmm. way. People try to sell shit they don't believe in. That's your problem. You got to believe in it. I believe in fucking weed. That's why I'm selling, doing the Badista thing. I yeah. love marijuana. I think it's a great product and I love financial technology. No problem. I could sell that shit my fucking asleep when i'm asleep wrestling dude i know more about it than most people because i'm a fu- i'm like obsessed with it that's how i sell it not because i have sales techniques it's because mm-hmm. somebody asked me a question i can give them a good goddamn answer that's based on fact um that's where you got to get you got to find what you're passionate about and hopefully figure out a way to sell it somehow one more thing uh you've also done mace work yeah, I invented uh, it. I, I invented the uh, the modern mace. Uh, that's that's probably one. I should of have my asked that success. a long time ago. But uh, well, that's probably one of my more successful yeah, yeah. things. Although I make no money from it. Yeah, yeah. But I'm the guy who started the whole fucking thing. I'm a huge fan of mace. I actually, uh, I, I got a couple people coming on that's all into clubs, maces. Uh, uh, I don't want to take too much of your time, but why did you that's get okay. into mace? I, I know it's an old technique that. Uh, where did it come from? India. Well, or is it Persia? Yeah, you know, it depends who you talk to. You talk or, to a fucking yeah. Indian, they're going to say Indian. You talk to <laughs> Persian, they're going to say Persian. I think the Persians had it first. Uh, I think it's one of those things where those two countries really, you know, back in the day, like you look up like the Mahabharata and all these old Vedic texts and stuff. There's a lot of like fighting and intermingling. They were very close geographically. So sometimes it gets hard to tell who did what first. And, you know, it's even like catch wrestling. I, it was documented. It was first documented. So people in the future 
could actually see it by people in Lancashire County, but it could have been practiced in Ireland because most people actually doing the sport were Irish, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, but we'll never really know. There's no, you just got to go. It was first documented. That's what we can say. Yeah. And that's the same. I think it's safe to say that the, the, uh, the Persians were the first, but they're, they're more big with the, uh, with Persian the jewelry, with the meals. Yeah. 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 The Gada really took off in India. But you have to understand, like Indian from, you know, like Indian uh, physical culture is huge. It's influenced so many things. And the base of so much of Indian physical culture is wrestling. So, yes, okay, they have the Kushti wrestlers and all that kind of stuff. And we see all the Hindu squats and the bodyweight exercises for that. And that's all been popularized by Carl back in the late nineties and uh, Matt Fury uh, popularizing and all that late nineties and mm -hmm. early two thousands. Um, the Gata or the Mace, um, which again is really Carl Gotch bringing it over. And then I popularized that and made that popular. But one thing people don't know is there's another one that's a wrestling workout um, called Mala Kham, uh, M-A-L-L-A-K-H-A-M-B, Mala Kham. And, um, it's, uh, it's where pole dancing strippers, where that comes from, but it was originally for males, for wrestlers. It was, they would have, you can Google it on or get it on YouTube to type in M-A-L-L-A-K-H-A-M-B. And you'll see these dudes that look just like, it's an old wrestling thing. And they're flipping around doing all the pole tricks that you see these, these, uh, these women doing now, not just strippers, but like pole fitness, which is actually yeah. a consideration for the Olympics. Now uh, huh. it's very much like a, gymnastics and stuff. Yeah, parallel it can bar, be, you have a vertical it's i mean I, yeah. it, some of the athletics that you see these people do is out of out of this world when i you know carl was famous he, you know i call it a douchebag filter he was famous for like if you couldn't go through the effort of doing 500 squats 250 hindu push-ups and hold a bridge for three minutes he's like i'm not going to show you and th there's a guy who's a hero of mine 100% integrity, never sold out. Like, I mean, he died poor, but he lived life on his terms and he lived a long, healthy life, you know? Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, in my opinion. So um, I went and I worked out with him and, and did all that shit. And I'm at his apartment in Tampa and he's like, here, have you seen this? And he busts out his big fucking wooden uh, mm -hmm. gata. And I'd never seen anything like that. And he's like, he swings it and he's all old and fucking crippled and shit. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, that looks cool. And I mean, it about took me off my feet the first yeah. time I tried to swing it. Cause it's 20, you know, it was 10 kilos and I'm like totally unprepared for it. But I was like, whoa, this is amazing. And he's like, listen, this is how you're going to get your grip strength for wrestling. You're not going to get anything better than this. And when I left, I couldn't get out of my head. And I'm like, man, I want one of those so bad. And there was nobody doing it. There was not, there was, there was nothing. I mean, to be honest, that's really why I do almost anything entrepreneurially uh -huh. is because I want it and nobody's doing it. And I'm like, well, if I want it, I'm pretty fucking typical. I know there's going to be other people who want it. So I'm just going to do it and make money uh, and actually get the thing I want and then make money too. There's nothing wrong with either one mm -hmm. of those. So um, at that time I went and I tried to, I talked to because he, Carl's was made out of wood. And so I went to a woodworker when I was, cause I was in LA at the time. Uh, and, 
the guy wanted like 400, 500 bucks. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to spend that much on a fucking, Jeez. on this thing. And um, so I just kept thinking about it. I'm like, man, I really want one of those fucking things. I don't know where to get it. I kept looking. Nobody was making it. You know, I, it was the internet. I, nobody in India was selling them. I couldn't fucking find one. So um, at that time, Pavel Totsalin, the kettlebell guy, yeah. that, was the, that was the shit, dude. Yep. Everybody was fucking, that was the cool thing, man. It was so trendy. Yeah. It was unbelievable. I got into that in 2004, kettlebells. Perfect. That's the exact time, dude. That's the, dude, so you know, it was like yeah. so, it was everywhere and it was so trendy. And so, and I even got certified and all that kind of stuff. I think one of the certs is up here somewhere. Um, but it's like, well, I started looking at a kettlebell and I was like, fuck, dude, if I could just do this without this curved handle and put a long handle in it, that's a fucking, that's the same goddamn thing functionally. I, I could swing it. So yeah. I started looking around for manufacturers and um, uh, Sonnen, Scott Sonnen had started doing his club bells, which were mm -hmm. Jory's, right? But mm -hmm. he didn't have anything for the Gata. And the Gata I knew was different because of the length. Yeah. I knew you couldn't just get a heavier one of Sonnen's things and start doing it. I knew that it wouldn't have the same uh, centrifugal force vectors, right? So, Correct. So I hit up at the time the biggest manufacturer of kettlebells, uh, and that was Tor Athletic. And I pitched them my ideas, sent them some videos, showed them, you know, what I, and they totally were like on it. They were like, no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> they, they were totally like into it. And so I started doing it and, and, you know, I was, one of the things I did that I think made it go is you like back in 2004, right? Remember mm -hmm. how much were they asking for just a fucking kettlebell cert? Uh, oh, the kettlebell cert plus not only the kettlebell cert and the only spot you could get it was, uh, like Midwest, right? Like our Minneapolis, you had dragon door, dragon yeah, door, dude. dragon yeah. door. How uh, much, so, were, do you remember how much it was? Just throw out a guess. Um, I thought it was like, it was either three or 500, somewhere around there where, and that was only like level one. Yeah, dude. You're looking at like, it was like thousands of dollars really, yeah. um, yeah. to get it. Well, so, yeah, because like a guy like me, a kid, I was only in 2004, you know, I was, you know, I was like 20. So like, I'm not going to fly, yeah. I'm not going to fly to Minneapolis just to get a cert. I'm going to just, I'm going to just watch videos or just play with it and just figure it out. So that's what I did. So instead of, I had the manufacturer, but I decided to zig instead of zag. Now, I didn't have a lot of money to pump into marketing or anything like that, like in the way that maybe Dragon Door did, right? Dragon mm -hmm. Door really did a great job in promoting themselves. So I thought, I want to sell the hardware. I'm going to give the software away for free. So what I did is I, I created, so not only did I have the mace, but I went and I said, you can do an online cert and it'll be free. All you have to do is hashtag mace bell and mm -hmm. You have to be able to swing at 10 kilo, 100 swings nonstop without editing it or any of that shit. And you have to do some, some uh, uh, program design, come up with some different ways how you would teach this to people uh, and some other hoops to jump through. That ended up being like one of the first kind of viral. It was before viral videos were a thing. Yeah. All of a sudden, everybody's starting. They're like, fuck, I could be a mace bell. I could be certified in the mace bell and teach it and make money with my personal training. And all I have to do is fucking practice and make a video. So I had all these people make all these videos and that all of a sudden now there's like 
10,000 different videos out there. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And that's what really got the movement going was yeah. just the kind of doing that free cert. And then to be honest with you, I kind of fell asleep at the wheel because there's only so much one person can do. I did all that, but you know, this was right when, when I had the chance to start training with Billy and I had to make a choice. Like, am I going to be the Mace Bell guru guy or am I going to go and just fucking learn at the feet of masters while I fucking have the chance? Mm -hmm. And that's what I chose. I mean, I, I don't regret it. I mean, I wish I was making on it money right now. Uh, Cause you know, Oh yeah. All these people are taken, have taken the idea, but I'm, I feel very blessed because they've taken it further than I would have had they not done it. Nobody would really be doing it. So, mm -hmm. you know, only the people that I was able to touch. So I'm absolutely thrilled that it's gotten so crazy fucking big and there's people making a living and traveling the world doing these seminars. And I am so that's, that's what I want to do as a coach. And that's like a financial and an entrepreneur coach. So I've, st I, I think I got my, this whole Thales coaching, my feet wet, really coaching people like Potenza or Bain to be able to take something that they are passionate about and start making a business with it. Or, you know, the guys doing the stuff with the mace bell and that kind of thing. So I, I'm really blessed. I mean, it's sometimes I have to pinch myself and like, well, that's so crazy. Yeah, you know. the, the way I see a coach too, um, because I, I love being a coach too, from like little kid sports to um, eventually, I eventually want to coach grappling uh, when I get a bigger knowledge base and uh, hone it in. When people start asking you to, yeah. Yeah, and when people start asking. But a true coach, I think, is um, they'll take, like, people give them the credit, but they don't, like, necessarily, like, oh, yeah, this is what I've done. They just want to see, they want to spread their knowledge. And people take it and like, like you, right? Like with your, your, your Thales and catch and, and just see it just spread, right? Like you just want to. Everybody's and, a link in the chain, man. And every chain, every link in that chain is both a student and a teacher. You have to be a student and then you have to teach. And that's just, to me, that's like yin and yang. It's like connected. Yeah. Um, so I usually ask people uh, like their favorite books. I mean, you got tons of books like uh yeah. that you read like statistics and i always see these pictures of all these number books and entrepreneur books um but i kind of want you to mention the books that you've written well okay so my, my how many two, books do you have actually i don't know at this point to be honest i think i have <laughs> okay. i think i could lay claim to probably eight or ten that okay. i've actually just written um my first foray into books was um i'm i'm a huge bibliophile like i fucking love books like my poor wife man like i have more books i guarantee you i have more books than probably 99 percent of the people you know and it's ridiculous it's kind of it's kind of crazy i worked in bookstores when mm -hmm. i was young before i you know had better paying jobs and stuff i mean that's what i did i love books um i started out actually part of scientific wrestling what i did is i um I was one of the things I was collecting and spending a lot of money on that I wanted to write off were these old wrestling books, very expensive books. And I knew nobody else could see them, you know, and I was a jujitsu wrestling pro wrestling guy, this weird hybrid guy before that was a thing. And I'm like, guys, this is fucking been going on for a hundred years. And they're all like, yeah, whatever. And I'm like, ah, so I started just fucking, I, I, my first books is I sat down with the best, old time books I could find with a fucking scanner, flip the page, hit the button, scan, 
flip the page, hit the button, scan. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. I did that. And those were the uh, first four authoritative encyclopedia of scientific wrestling books that if you go to um, fightinglibrary.com, I did that. And I did that not only for catch wrestling, I did that for bare knuckle boxing. I did that for um, Indian clubs. And I also did it for jujitsu. I found a bunch of old jujitsu tomes. And all those are available very cheap, by the way. Uh, I think I must have spent probably close to $10,000 on, on the material. Uh, but they, I, I didn't do it for that. I already owned mm -hmm. it. To preserve um, history, right? Like you wanted basically, to, you wanted yeah. To, and so now you can get all that. It's like ten thousand pages of material for fifty bucks. Uh, all of it digital. You can download it, copy it, send it, mail it, whatever. Um, so that was my first foray. But what I didn't, I didn't want to photocopy books. I wanted to yeah. add content and update views. I added um, some other information to it, right? And then, and I pitched it to a, a publishing house. ECW Press, and that was Say Uncle, which was first published in 2011. I mean, that, that material I had started gathering probably in the late 90s um, originally, but by 2011, I had enough of it and edited it together, and the publisher believed in it, and boom, that was Say Uncle. Because of the success of Say Uncle and my connection with Billy, mm -hmm. I was able to pitch them on uh, basically me ghostwriting Billy's life, um, having Billy just basically dictate me to me a bunch of shit and then have him proof it and send it out. And, and that was physical chess. So those are probably my two best known books. Um, and I'd say they're the two best known books because they were actually published by another publisher mm -hmm. and a publisher has just economies of scale. They have marketing, they have placement. They could get your shit out way better than, than most individual like self-published authors. But <clears throat> I also have written a number of books um, in philosophy in economics and in um, politics. And, um, but I self-published most of those because I did learn some lessons. When you publish with another company, if you get updated information, you can't change it because it's published by another company. They printed out the books. If you self-publish mm -hmm. and it's print on demand, you figure out, oh shit, I wasn't right. You can go and change it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And then republish it. And, and you can make sure you have the most up-to-date best product information mm -hmm. product in a book that you can so i'm a big proponent of self-publishing as well i probably have oh man not counting like the fighting library stuff because i think there's probably 10 books there alone but i probably have another six books that i've published on you know i have a book called anomaly which is about um kind of a pop science book about type two errors and statistics about false positives and false negatives and mm -hmm how that can impact the way we think about just everyday life. I had a book on, uh, I, w I wrote the first book ever to be published on the uh, Tea Party uh, political movement out of 2010 and showing how it was basically taken over by establishment conservatives to serve their needs when it originally started out kind of against the establishment conservatives and how all the corporate money and the political lobbies were able to infiltrate and change the, the, um, the meaning of the movement into being what it ended up being at the end where it started out as a tax protest and then ended up being like anti-Iran at the end or some, mm -hmm. some weird racist thing. Um, and then uh, I wrote, uh, I wrote another book back in 2011 called Endonomics. And, uh, and basically it's Endonomics, the end of the United States as we know it. And 
I had a radio show for about three years on a political talk radio station in Utah when I lived there and um, a live two-way talk. It's called K-Talk in uh, Utah. And um, because of my background with economics, I was trying to explain some of these concepts that were happening and people were really interested after the 2008, 2009 crisis. So I just got sick of answering the same question. So I put them all down in a book and, yeah. and most of my predictions in that book actually, unfortunately have come true. Uh, yeah, but I thought it wouldn't happen until 2025, but it looks like 2020 was the year that they really get to start everything. <laughs> I'm, I'm right now in the process of kind of gathering all my writings onto a, uh, onto a website so I can just have them up there for free for yeah. people you know all right yeah sounds good man uh, i'll uh i'll post those uh those two books um physical chess and uh say uncle right those are the two that i own right now say uncle was great i think they'd be the most relevant yeah to, to this yeah so say uncle is great just because uh it was interesting that you got to interview all those types of people all, all the different all those guys were were really uh i consider them friends too yeah um, i was very lucky i mean especially gene labelle gene labelle is a guy that i wish more people um would he would get a bigger uh, he already has a lot of appreciation but i think he even deserves more he's he's an amazing dude well that's why i really support support what neil melanson's doing because he's kind of him, from that line yeah him and gokor right uh fucking gokor is uh, a beast i wrestled gokor <laughs> I wrestled Gokor. Now I wrestled Gokor before I really learned anything from Billy and, and Carl, but I wasn't a slouch. I was pretty decent. And man, Gokor is another level. That guy is a great, great fucking grappler that doesn't get enough recognition as well, in my opinion. Yeah, um, and yeah, and Neil Melanson too, because he did come from Highestin, and you know, I, and I didn't know this that uh, that was uh, Gene LaBelle's place, wasn't it? That he he teamed up with Gokor. Yeah, basically. Heisen. I mean, I think, I think what happened is, you know, Gokor had a gym, gym space. He's a tough dude, very competitive, always out there, very game. And, uh, and in the way that I hooked up with Billy, I think Gokor hooked up with Gene and, uh, but, but Gokor had a gym and Bill, uh, Gene would just in, in North Hollywood, which was close to, to Gene. Um, and I went there for about six months. It's a great place. Uh, it was the old school in North Hollywood. Um, mm -hmm. but, um, he so Gene just started going to Gokor's school and it, I so I think it was always Gokor's, okay school. But Gene, you know, was like Gokor's mentor, and so he was there. He would always teach on I think it was Monday nights. Bill or uh, uh, Labelle. Yeah, man, that's awesome. Uh, like I said, that that say uncle book, you, you had the opportunity to talk to a ton of people, and yeah, I, essentially that's what I'm kind of doing, just more on a broader base, not just catch wrestlers but with jujitsu people with entrepreneurs uh, you you happen to fit all those molds um but <laughs> but it's just uh that, man there's so many interesting people out here right like in this world that you know uh, it's important to have the right mentors yeah. you know what i mean like a lot yeah. of people i think cut themselves short like i mean you gotta you really gotta go try to find the best that you can find and, and that will work with you. You have to do that. Yeah. That's how you're going to get good. You get better by being with people better than you. And that holds you to that standard. And that's how you get good. Exactly. And then uh, the physical chess, uh, I, I think everybody should read that because it's just, it's just an interesting life, right? Just uh, from the days in the, the Europe area and coming over here. And it's just, it's definitely different. 
uh, yeah, Billy, Billy's story is absolutely fascinating. I, I really, um, he was a special person, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And, uh, him and Carl were probably the two most important people in catch wrestling, uh, in the second half of the 20th century, you know, and, and, and the early beginning of the 21st. So why did, so was Carl more popular to the public than Billy? Well, Carl's 12 years older, oh, okay. first of all. Okay, okay. So he was around longer. All right. Um, <clears throat> Carl, um, you know, Carl held the tag team championships for WWF. Carl oh, really? made it. Oh, I mean, who's, I don't even know who holds that shit today, but like people that are on fucking lunch boxes and shit today, Carl made it to that level of, of recognition in professional wrestling as well. Um, but Carl, Carl's interesting, you know, cause it, one, he's 12 years older. So he's more of almost like an uncle figure, which is uh, Billy discusses this in physical chess. Okay. Um, Carl was more like an uncle figure. He was quite a bit older, you know, 12 years older. And um, Carl was the one he got blacklisted uh, as a pro wrestler because he beat up buddy Rogers, who was like, you know, the, the worked or phony or the kayfabe champ, mm-hmm. uh, the guy who was drawing money. Well, Carl fucking was new and young and too much testosterone and not very patient and, and beat the fuck out of the guy in the locker room. And he got blackballed for it and he couldn't work. He was working as a garbage man, uh, even for a short time. And his buddy, Big Bill Miller, who was another pro wrestler, I think he was a football guy, but had been getting booked in Japan because the Japanese were really interested in, in having these pro wrestling matches. They really got into it because they're like Ricky Dozan and, and, and that stuff in the 50s and 60s. So Carl went over to Japan first and they loved Carl because, you know, the Japanese are psychopaths, man. They're like little tiny island nation. And they brought, you know, they're like, fuck, we're just going to go bomb the United States. I mean, these are like serious warrior culture people. They're like, we don't have bombs. I just fly my plane into you. We both die. I win. Like they're nuts. Right. (laughs) And so Carl goes over there and he's a total fucking sadomasochist, but like nothing sexual, just pure catch wrestling violence like just a mm. brutal dude and they loved it and he became the god of wrestling you know so carl was already established and he was working for a promotion and a rival promotion the one that carl wasn't working for that was coming up was like we need our own carl so they you know they had heard that carl learned a lot of the submission mm-hmm. stuff uh out of billy riley's gym so eventually somebody in japan gets a hold of billy riley and he's like well okay and he sends over Billy. Now they didn't know that Billy and Carl were like uncle and nephew. Yeah. They, you know, it's these rival companies that are like cutthroat in Japan. And so Billy and Carl are both over in Japan, have to pretend they don't know each other, have to go meet each other on this sneak to, to be friends. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so Carl had a head start. Carl really okay. kind of paved the way for catch wrestling in Japan. And then Billy, you know, I, I think Carl, you know, you have to understand Carl was like huge. I mean, he was like six, five or something like that. And 270 pounds, but here's a guy who could do gym gymnastics, yeah. you know, like, like iron rings and stuff. He was super nimble. He was an incredible athlete and Billy was a great athlete, but I don't think, honestly, I don't think Billy had just the natural crazy genetics that Carl did. Um, and so my, my, the longest short of that is Carl was incredibly tough and spent 10 years at Riley's gym learning the, the catch as catch can style under Billy Riley. Well, more so um, 
uh, Joe Robbie, who was Billy, um, uh, uh, Joe Robbie was a guy who was injured and he kind of took Carl under his wing at, mm-hmm. um, but I think, you know, Carl never went to college, nothing like that. And I'm not saying anything against anybody who does, but mm-hmm. Billy, he just way more intellectual about his approach to catch wrestling. Billy was, I think, far more technical, mm-hmm. um, honestly. Um, anyway, I mean, so you, you ended up having like kind of a, 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 a one-two punch of like Carl in Japan and then boom, then you had Billy and they were educating everybody. I mean, you know, Carl was there for the beginning of New Japan Pro Wrestling. He was mm-hmm. there for the beginning of Pancras, um, the UWFI, all those guys. So, you know, all the proto MMA professional wrestling organizations. So, and it seemed like Billy had these, uh, yeah, Billy has these freaking limbs that are just like, his arms look extra long. He's got these <laughs> hands that look like he'd probably crush my, my whole arm. No, but. yeah, he was like big mitts. You know, I think a lot of people get an idea that catch wrestling is like, you know, using your weight, throwing your weight around and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And yeah. I think it's the exact exact opposite. Just because there are heavyweights and a lot of the heavyweights were the more famous guys like yeah. Carl and Billy and, you know, Neil would be a, a heavyweight. Um, when you coach, you begin to realize that a tall, lanky guy needs to be coached differently than a short, stocky guy. And a heavyweight needs to be coached differently than a, than a lightweight. And there's different things involved. And so one of the things that I was really excited about BJJ Fanatics reaching out to me is that it allowed me to show the way I learned as a lanky wrestler not to use force and strength because I don't have it. I'm just not, it's, I'm not a big bodybuilder guy. I'm not a big power lifter guy. It's just not in my thing. I'm six foot one, 185 pounds, maybe 190 if I'm picking out. And it's like, I have always been like that, but, and you can look at the pictures and you can talk to the old timers. All the best catch wrestlers were actually the tall lanky guys and they never use force. And again, that goes back to kind of the, the hoist Gracie sales pitch of jujitsu. Here's this little skinny dude and he's fighting these Greek God, awful, scary monsters in a locked cage and he's winning. I think that is maybe the upside of having a noodle like me, a, uh, a lanky dude like me, show the moves in something like a BJJ Fanatics. So people who, because I think there's more people that are not giant than are giant. Yeah. So yeah. I, think, I think there's an advantage to, to people seeing that a lot of these moves are pure technique and not force. Well, even it's me, leverage. I'm I'm six foot two fifteen right now, so I'm considered like one of the bigger guys on the mats and i'm like yeah i'm like really i'm like i'm really not that big but but in in hindsight or in the perspective of like jujitsu and stuff that yeah it's mostly a, a lot of smaller guys yeah um, and and that but that's also like i mean you know you as a tall guy you know that you're the outlier you know and yeah. if you gather 50 people in a room there's only like two or three guys that are your size or taller or bigger yeah. you know it's just how it is and so um, if in, especially in a jujitsu world or like you're trying to mass market, you're trying to do retail, um, sales of information products. I think that, you know, you have to appeal to the people that are more like your demographic. And so in that regard, you know, sure. I wish I looked like a giant. I mean, look at Joe Bain, dude, Joe Bain, <laughs> He's a that animal. guy, that guy should be fucking a pro wrestler. 
he should be a pro wrestler because he can make money because he's so huge and intimidating and, and, and technical on top of all of that. But he looks like a pro wrestler, you know? Um, but, but it's the same thing with Neil too. Like these are big dudes. And so I think there's, you find a lot of heavyweights really like to learn from them because mm -hmm. they're the same size as those yeah. guys, you know? So I'm just hoping to present like more of a lanky guy's uh, approach to catch wrestling. And, and I hope to see more people doing like short guy or small guy uh, catch wrestling. Yeah. Techniques. But I also, I like to uh, learn from Joel, uh, like uh, stuff that you've shown on YouTube and even Sean Doggerty. Sean's uh, great. Yeah. Sean's amazing. And, and, and Joel, Joel's amazing. These are great guys. Yeah. Yeah. Highly technical and super knowledgeable. And, uh, um, anyways, uh, I think, uh, we touched on a lot of things today and, uh, <laughs> we were all, all over the board, but, uh, I, I, I enjoyed, uh, this whole conversation and, uh, hopefully we can do it again. Um, yeah, oh, uh, there you go. Do it again. Oh, yeah. Real, oh, there you go. Uh, real fast. So I know you got things coming up for scientific wrestling, right? Uh, coaching cert yeah. type, uh, stuff. Uh, do you have those dates handy? So Pinion Hills, um, that's going to be at, at my buddy Matt Mullen's place. It's really kind of cool. He's trying to build like a martial arts retreat. Mm -hmm. It's really neat. It's actually pretty cool. Um, that's going to be August 8th and 9th. So that's in Pinion Hills. So um, like San Bernardino kind of area, yeah. uh, Southern California. Yeah. That's coming up. Uh, I just got done doing a camp with Joe Bain in Fort Worth, Texas, which I was amazing. Um, but we, and then two weeks after Pinion Hills, we've got Orlando. Uh, and Orlando, uh, that's a day Patron's gym. Uh, that's August 21st and through the 23rd. That's a three day camp. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that's going to be myself and Harry Smith. Who's, uh, DB Smith jr. The son of the, uh, of Davey boy Smith from the British okay. Bulldog famous tag team out of WWE. He's a beast and he's a hell of a grappler. Not only, you know, making a living as a professional wrestler, but he is, uh, he's winning gold, uh, grappling. He's a great athlete. Then we have Denver, Denver, uh, where I live. Um, yeah. That's going to be a Genesis MMA, which right now is um, ranked the number five uh, uh, MMA gym in the United States based on win-loss ratios mm -hmm. for the fighters. It's a fight gym, you know, less, less than a retail or a commercial gym. Um, that's going to be September 4th through 6th, again, three days. Then uh, the last one for the season is going to be in uh, Phoenix, and that'll be October 10th. I'm sorry, October 9th through 11th. So the weekend, of October 10th. What kind of coaches uh, are in Denver and in Phoenix? Yeah, I, so I, we're at Dave Patron's gym and it's going to oh, be Dave, Dave yeah. and myself and uh, Harry Smith uh, yeah. uh, leading, the, leading the coaching. Then uh, Pinion Hills is just going to be me. Um, we were going to have Sam Cresson, but Sam uh, works a security gig um, for a nursing home. And so he has to be very careful about yeah, he can't get yeah, COVID yeah. and if he does anything that's at risk, he has to quarantine for two weeks. And so uh, sadly, and Joe and Sam is just absolutely top notch, mm -hmm. but he's kind of out of pocket until all this shit is figured out. Um, so Orlando is Patron, Harry Smith and myself, Denver was going to be me and, um, and Sam. I'm not exactly sure who I'm going to bring out for Denver. I've still got to figure that out. Um, and then Phoenix was going to be myself and Jesse Merez. Jesse has uh, been with me. He might have he might have been in the program the longest. He's another complete stud. 
nobody knows who he is. I mean, people know who he is, but he deserves way bigger recognition. Him, uh, you know, uh, come up through this program and now helping me uh, coach it. And he's got a gym down in um, uh, the Inland Empire down in Southern California. Oh, does he? Okay. Yeah. So, so um, that's kind of what we're looking at. Um, again, Pinion Hills, August 8th. Orlando, August 21st, Denver, September 4th, and Phoenix, uh, which will be me and Jesse, um, uh, that's October 9th, and that's at Black Flag Jiu-Jitsu. Um, oh, yeah. Ball, also a stud and a big uh, supporter. Um, and, and he's, I'm looking forward to Gilbert coming up because he's, he's attacking it. He's at like every mm -hmm. camp he can be. He's probably going to be a coach here very shortly. All right. Uh, that sounds good. Uh yeah, I appreciate your time. I'll post all this. I'll try and I'll try and get this one posted fast because those dates are coming up fast. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> please come out and and please, man, like just figure it out because part of the problem with this COVID shit is it's like I may not be able to do this stuff. Uh, to be honest with you, for much longer. Yeah. Not, not. I mean, I already have had crazy health problems and stuff, and just in the last year, that's not really the problem. It's like with them turning on and turning off the economy like this and, and basically making what we love illegal. Yeah. Uh, you got to get out, man. Cause who knows what the heck the future's going to be. Yeah. I do appreciate uh, you and all the other guys uh, with this catch thing and uh, preserving it. Um, yeah. And by all means, John Potenza is absolutely great. He's come, he's yeah. come up through the program as well. Yep. So uh, Jake, uh, yeah, I appreciate your time and thank you for hopping on for these two last two hours. It was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it, Greg. All right. See you later, Jake. Okay, take care.